3 triple R. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I am joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. It is a full cave tonight. Good evening to you all. Good hello, evening. Hello. Good evening. And I want to give a special mention to a new member of the Plato's Cave team. Uh, Faith Everard has come on board recently to work behind the scenes for us uh, editing and producing the podcast. This has been done previously in a fairly hacky fashion by myself and and Josh Nelson, but we now have someone dedicated to the job and uh, so far doing an excellent job, in fact. And we thank Faith very much for that and welcome her to the team. Thank you, Faith. Welcome. Yay, Faith. Woo! Now, on tonight's show, Logan, the new film in the X-Men franchise that is supposedly the final film to feature the much-loved Wolverine character. And we'll also be taking a look at Alone in Berlin, a World War II drama based on the true story of a German couple who committed subversive acts against the Nazi regime. But first... The Family is a new Australian documentary by Rosie Jones, whose previous film was the documentary Triangle Wars from 2011. The Family is a film about the Melbourne cult of the same name, which, although it still does exist today in some degree, it was most prominent in the 1960s to the 1990s. The cult was led by a woman named Anne Hamilton Byrne, who believed herself to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, Her and her husband acquired the custody of several children that she raised as her own. Now, Jones's film explores the influence the cult had throughout several Victorian legal, medical and political institutions and also the police investigation into the cult that lasted several decades and resulted in a raid to rescue the children. Interviewees include members of the police who were involved in the investigation as well as several of the cult's survivors. Now, I'm going to sort of decline from commenting. This is a MIF premiere fun film, and I do work for MIF completely separate to the part that did make this film, but I still feel like I should sort of sit back and let the others discuss this film, or can I just sneak in that I think it's absolutely brilliant? <laughs> Bite your lip. You're not meant to say anything. Hush your mouth. <laughs> it's transparency. He's being transparent. No, he That's all I'll say, though. But um, I'd love to hear what the three of you thought of the family. I don't think we're going to be short of things to say. No. Hot diggity. What a film, huh? Yes. It's, it's Come on, quite... guys. We've got to lift the level of discourse here. Um, Thank God I backed off on right. this uh, Above hot diggity. <laughs> yeah, hot diggity. Okay, mental note. Don't start a review with hot diggity. You know, when I heard that there was a documentary on the family, the first thing that I thought of was the other family scandal, yeah. the other family controversy, which has been a bit more forgotten. I mean, I'm, I don't know whether you can quantitatively compare which, them. Because which family is that? In the Adelaide family murders. Um, oh, so right. in Australia, we have two really icky, horrible, historical things that happened, both oddly Yay called the family. <laughs> um, some, I don't know, I don't even know if you legally could make a documentary about the other family, and we've got this one on our hands to tackle. Let's get through one and then we'll deal with the other. Well, weirdly, I've got a third family unit, you could say, to throw into this mix. This isn't your personal, <laughs> is this your personal family? Not so much. <laughs> Uh, and I say that having cleared that with lawyers. No, not at all. No, no, no. I mean, just in terms of um, sometimes that term is used as a throwaway reference for the Cosa Nostra or the uh, the Sicilian mafia oh, okay. and who, who have famously tentacles in uh, places where this 
film shows that this little operation running largely out of hilly and regional areas actually somehow manages to have its tendrils into um uh well seemingly up to the very top of the state even though it's not really quite fleshed out but we understand the department of premier was made aware at some point of uh the bad things going on in them hills and and nothing further mm. developing the hills have eyes Discuss. <laughs> Discourse lifting people. Discourse lifting. I, I, um, I felt that I think uh, there's something about sect and cult documentaries that is just always fascinating and there seem to be endless. I mean, every country has its um, dirty secrets that seem to, you know, it's Kool-Aid that it's going to, to drink. Ours um, in Melbourne, the family... I almost sound proud of it. That's wrong. Absolutely not. I found that it was completely chilling because I didn't know about it and I remember it happening at the time. And Anne Hamilton Byrne, especially this woman who looks like Joanna Lumley, running uh, this... Well, what you usually think of in terms of a cult is something that's um, aside from society and runs separately as its own little outpost. But this was this was part of society. I mean, they did live away in their in Lake Eildon and in Alinda uh, in the Dandenong Ranges, but they, as Cerise has already said, they infiltrated um, the upper echelons of society, the power mongers of society, who actually believed and seemed to follow her and there's no way in terms of what this cult did um there was starvation i don't believe there was sexual assault um but there was starvation and there was terrible emotional assault and emotional manipulation and then um forcibly giving these children lsd and experimenting on them so the fact that people that were in positions of trust were actually condoning that is is absolutely terrifying and this is it, this is melbourne this is you know this is us and so. it's not and it's in the not too distant past and i think no. that's one of the really powerful things in this documentary when I was watching it, I wasn't aware, and I don't think that this is a spoiler because I don't think the film particularly, you know, it's not a reveal or at any point in the film, um, it's not a ta-da moment. Uh, she's still alive. She is, So there's yes, this yes. strange feeling watching it that it's all being talked about in the present tense that I wasn't quite following. And it's like, why isn't this film really kind of kicking the boot in? And it's like, well, because... It's not something that happened a long, long time ago. This is, you know, and the interviews with the people that survived. Um, I think one of the really in- emotionally intelligent things about this film is uh, how it balances this scandal aspect um, that we all we all just sup on that teat, don't we? We, we wish course, we didn't, but we're no, there supping away. But it balances, headlines. it balances that with an extraordinary sense of tragedy and sadness and loss, the, the loss of childhood that these people experienced. And the corruption stuff too, I think, is very, very cannily approached in the sense that it's not just they were all, um, you know, that people with money, you know, these sort of uh, people in power, they weren't just um, letting it happen. They were a part of it happening. You know, these incredible stories about, uh, you know, how did she get these children? How how on earth was she in uh, the guardian of these children? And as these stories unfold about documents being signed away and uh, horrible, horrible stories, there's a real sense of tragedy to this film that I think adds a really important human, human dimension that stops it from being totally tabloid. And that tragedy spans generations. So there were children who grew up in this environment who then were... Uh, now, there were weddings arranged for them. They were advised whom they sh- would marry and then perhaps whom they would separate from. There was all 
um, quite incestuous, even though these people were not blood kin necessarily. Um, they were they're all brought up to believe they were each other's um, uh, siblings. They're all dressed identically in that children of the damnedish way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and there's all this extraordinary archival footage. I'd love to know the backstory behind uh, the acquisition of all that archival footage. But of these kids playing, and but then we we understand that there were propaganda videos shot, and this even reminds me of uh, what the Nazis did in World War Two. This you know, perhaps sounds a slightly extreme point of comparison, but uh, famously there was a concentration camp in Czechoslovakia in Terezin, which uh, where the Nazis staged propaganda videos to show that actually they weren't treating the Jews so badly, and they got to put on shows and have a good time, and spirits were high, and this was done for the Red Cross visiting, and of course. A total sham. And we, we see this footage of kids ostensibly happy, playing, swinging on uh, monkey bars and uh, just prancing about, all dressed the same, which is super creepy, but they, at least in that footage, seem to be happy. But then all of this testimony we receive from survivors just paints a very different picture. And we certainly learn that the abuse was not just emotional, that it was very physical too. And there was, a, I think there was even a, a suggestion of confinement and horrible uh, tight spaces, perhaps even in floorboards. Did I read that correctly in that scene where we see floorboards being lifted just after mention had been made of having to hide the children sometimes? Just that sent yes. a shiver down my spine. I think you might be right. I actually found that, I mean, this is great information to mine for the docu- documentary m- makers. I think it was Rosie Jones who made it. Um, and I'm I'm often the one that bangs on about if the film's too long, but for some reason I felt that this would have been even more powerful as a TV series, that there was so much to work uh, with here and I felt that there was some... I wanted to know more. It wasn't quite explained enough. I could almost follow one of those children now. I wanted to know more about their assimilation into the world. It's, it's funny really. that you say that because when I first saw this and, and the, the fact that... Hamilton Burner's still alive really hit me. I, I just I just didn't know this. I didn't read up on the story before I watched the film. I really as I said, I went in thinking it was the other family, not the hmm. you know, like the other bad news thing and uh, you know, it was all a bit confusing. Um I, I figured it out pretty quickly. But um yeah, so that that really knocked me out and that was that shock that this is still going. So I I think that there is a very conscious sense that this is scratching the surface. It does feel unfinished. It does. Um it? Yeah. but I, I think that that is part of the that's exactly part of the point that, you know, this trauma is ongoing. And so, yeah, I think rather than an actual structural thing or a formal thing, I think that it's a, there is this ambiguity that's always, you know, this, that's just going to hover over this horrendous story. There's a lot made of um, that a lot of people in affluent Melbourne in the late 60s were embracing search for greater meaning in life and uh, Eastern um, mysticism and and exp- the, the counterculture was alive. Melbourne did have a counterculture. It wasn't completely sort of stuffy and six o'clock swillish and that was life. There were people out there looking for a greater uh, sense of a place in the, the universe. But quite how that then led to people in elite universities and elite medical institutions and in uh, the legal community uh, aiding and abetting someone like Anne Hamilton Byrne who 
and and her husband, who's such a curious figure, and I'd have liked to know more about him as well. I, I could watch a whole documentary yes. yeah. about that exactly. guy because yeah. that dynamic between the two of them is super creepy as well. Yeah. She, just photos of Hamilton yeah. Byrne. I mean, she, it's like she's riffing on the Stepford Wives. I mean, we've yep. talked about the kids, and, and she she bleached the children's hair. I think she left the redheads because she was a redhead when she was yeah. a child. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's a definite village of the damn thing. But she really looks like. She's cosplaying the Stepford Wives. It's extraordinary. Because well, we do learn something of her backstory and it doesn't jibe at all with, of course, what she was projecting. But then how she made that leap from someone of very modest means to somebody who infiltrates the upper echelons herself in order to win them over and have them do her evil bidding, I don't know. Mm. I, um, I would like to know. I wanted to know more about that. And I don't know legally how it could be wrangled about talking about the the family today, but that was another thing. There was only one person who sort of represented the family, uh, the family of 2016 or, or whenever, but I, I would have been really... Inter- I'd like to know more <laughs> being living in Melbourne now and seeing well, what is the family now? What does it do? Obviously, they're not um, harbouring children in some... Oh, well, or are they? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? In Lake Ilden. <laughs> in Lake Ilden. I, I really liked the policeman that was interviewed... In this film, yeah, yeah, Lex, Lex the Man, yep. Lex the Man, who I actually got to meet. He's he, quite he, an extraordinary person. He's a really engaging mm. interview subject, um, yep. regardless of the, you know, there's a warmth to him and there's a real passion to the story that he tells. But I do really like the focus in this film on on the survivors. I think that's really crucial. I think that she was more interested in a way in telling their story than unfolding a riveting narrative. And I think that there's a tension. There's a dramatic tension there and that f- moments that we feel should have perhaps lifted didn't. And I, I think that, that that's, again, that line that stops it from being too tabloid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the tabloid, like the sensationalist in me wants to know. I want to know more about that husband. But it's like, you know what, now it's right that I know more about the people that survived this. I need to know their story mm. so I can get a grip on the, the fact that this is actually something, this is an entertainment, this is something horrible that happened to real people who are living with that now. That said, there is this one odd device employed that didn't quite sit right with me where we do see little recreations of just police work but really ordinary stuff, like just the, a, a guy <laughs> playing that cop as a young man just going walking down corridors, sitting at a desk, looking through files. And I, I don't really know that the film benefited greatly from incorporating that sort of recreation material. It's The, it's, the ghost of Errol Morris. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's not necessary. But that was another really strong part of the film. Um, Lex DeMann was given a lot of time as the lead investigator, but talking about how it actually affected the people that were involved in the investigation. And in some ways, they were survivors of it as well. And people that had to live so long with it and really didn't have a sense of retribution really from what ended up happening. That feeds into directly to what we were talking about no, last, last week, week in Camera Person. Yes, that's exactly um, what I was going to say. Where there were some people in Bosnia who had worked on investigations having precisely that conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, what happens to the people who are deeply involved in uncovering atrocities, yeah, really incomprehensible mm. horrors, um, where do they put that baggage? You yeah. know, this sort of uh, PTSD by proxy, mm. you know, and, and I, I, I think that that's a really significant thing to pay attention to. And I'm glad that he kind of got to voice that as part of his trauma, you know, yeah. this this sort of ugliness bleeds, you know, it's contagious. It yeah. doesn't, it's not contained once it's revealed. It sort of seeps into the lives of everybody that, you know, is affected by it. It's horrible. 
The family is screening at just a handful of cinemas around Melbourne. It's been out for over a week now, so do make a point of trying to catch it as soon as you can. Because, yeah, like I said, there's only about three cinemas it's on at, and it, I don't know how much longer to be screening for, so that is one to prioritise. You're on Plato's Cave with Alex Eversaris and Thomas. This is 3 Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Logan is the 10th film in the X-Men series, which began in 2000 with the original X-Men film, and it's the third standalone film to focus on the franchise's most popular character, James Howlett, better known as Logan, previously known as Wolverine, and played by Hugh Jackman. Set in the not-so-distant future of 2029, the mutants are all but extinct, and Logan is a washed-up and broken ex-superhero. Drunk and full of rage, his mutant powers to rapidly heal are starting to fade, and the metal that enhances his skeleton and deadly claws is starting to poison him. He spends his time working as a limo driver and caring for his old mentor, Charles Xavier, previously known as Professor X and played by Patrick Stewart, who is battling dementia and losing the ability to control his telepathic abilities. Things get even more complicated when Logan finds himself having to care for a young mutant named Laura, played by newcomer Daphne Keane. This is a much bleaker and far more violent film than previous films in the franchise, and despite requiring some general knowledge of the backstory to make sense of it all, I still think it very much stands apart as a self-contained film. I have kind of worn my love for this film on its sleeve. I think the second I had finished watching it, I think this is an incredible accomplishment as someone who's never been in terribly invested in the X-Men franchise. Um, I haven't cared for many superhero films that much over the years. I think this is one of the all-time great superhero films. So that's the position I'm going to argue. Ta-da! I'm dying to know what you guys think. Well... I agree with you. I think that um, uh, I, I, when you say you weren't very invested in the X-Men series, I think I saw the first X-Men film, which was now something tragic like 17 years ago. Yeah, so, year 2000, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's been 10 X-Men films and this is the third, is it? Yeah, you said that. That's I said right. It. Sorry. <laughs> we weren't doing so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for my attention. Oh, whoopsie. Um, <laughs> Did you say there was three? This is yeah, the third? Yeah. Okay. This is the third uh, anyway. standalone Wolverine film. All right, film. all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did that. That's really good, um, as you can tell. Uh, for me, um, it stands alone, as you said. <laughs> it do- definitely does stand alone um, because I haven't seen anything for ages and uh, I do believe there are a com- couple of references to previous films that I probably missed out on, but that didn't really matter at all. I think Logan is really interesting because um, it is called Logan. It's not called something like Wolverine's Revenge or anything. I think it's really cleverly titled because it says straight away being the character's actual person name. Uh, it is a character study. It is a film that is about the human the human condition, not the mutant condition. And... Um, in the past for me with superhero films and I have a really strange relationship with them I find most of them are terrible um the parts that I've enjoyed the most are the making of the superhero. So as soon as it becomes the, you know, I don't know them against their nemesis. Oh, you like the origin stories? Yes, I do. Right. 
But now I feel like I, I like the old ageing superhero yeah. story. So it's kind of come right around and I found this incredibly appealing and I found it interesting with what they did with ageing superpowers as well. In fact, excellent Patrick Stewart's ageing superpower was wonderful. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that before, the idea that no. these powers at some point will start to fade and that's what's happened to the characters in this film. Yep. Well, not fade so much as become distorted through... Um, a d- dementia or some similar ailment and, and yeah. thus his powers will be warped and need to be managed carefully by attendants, uh, his fellow remaining mutants. Uh, I too have never had terribly much invested in this series and I think I would have seen the second one and maybe one other and maybe caught little snippets on TV and not really been drawn into them. But I, I was struck immediately by just how gritty this is. It, it's R-rated, I think, is it? It's, it is. it's actually yep. really not for younger audiences. No, not, uh, not at all. No. And it, it, so it's almost, I mean, this is this term sounds ludicrous when applied to superhero films, but this is almost a dirty realist superhero film. <laughs> it's it's so grim. And, um, and we, we really sense uh, Logan's suffering it is it, more than his superpower we we see him suffer time and again and and bear these dreadful wounds that um that are external but we as we're advised at regular intervals he's being eaten away on in the inside as well and when we start to see that too he's just deteriorating much as his mood is throughout the whole <laughs> film as well he's not terribly chipper i, I don't he must have been <laughs> <laughs> he must have been a little perkier in, in some of the, the previous not, films. Not no? much, I don't he, think. He's always he? been the grumpy, reluctant yeah. superhero yeah, who was recruited and grudgingly went along with pr- pr- Professor yeah. X in the early days. I, I but, pray yeah. to God that the phrase not chipper was on the treatment <laughs> for this film. Chipper. He's very not chipper. Yeah. <laughs> Scene opens, Logan is not chipper. And thus he dispatches some baddies in a less than perky manner. Mm. <laughs> so, um, at regular intervals in this actually generally pretty gripping film um i I, normally i fear the bloatedness of these sort of films these blockbusters this is long but it it is well paced Mm. and it's uh i I note the director james mangold is someone who has come from a a, a background of of films that are sort of straddling that mainstream art house line a little films like copland which i really admired when that came out way yeah, back when that was great Love that. and i adored his 1995 film heavy a very early live tyler oh, yeah, film yeah. That's right. which was very much an american indie like it was a small film and girl interrupted was one of his too i think that was one of his yeah yeah and i actually believe he made the previous wolverine film which i, I didn't see but i this this is clearly a different this is a huge yeah. i mean the, the last wolverine film was actually pretty good i saw bits of it on tv but, um, and it looked true to the norm this yeah. did not strike me as at, at all typical of yep. the genre i've seen all of them except for the last x-men film which i was told by everybody was terrible um but this one is a real departure it just has that incredible grit and the violence i mean so you know all, all through this franchise they've got this character who has these amazing claws these steel claws and you're just waiting for him to really cut loose in this film we get the claws going through people's heads God, over yeah. and over again yeah. and it's exhilarating <laughs> <laughs> And then, the, sure and also, there's another, you know, there's another character introduced to as, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but we we see this in in, in other characters as well, and so that kind of grit and brutality uh, is 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 um, just really exciting because. I, I see. I'm old enough to remember the days when we hated superhero films being too uh, colourful and, and and flimsy, and we wanted the dark stuff. And Tim Burton's Batman was for us 
superheroes going dark and interesting. And then there seems to have been a backlash over the last few years about superhero films taking them too seriously and people wanted the more camp, colourful aesthetic. And I've I've kind of sleepwalked through most of those. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we've got, you know, the dark, serious stuff back. Not for its own sake, though, but to do real character exploration. I mean, this, the, the, the references to, this, to the Western as a genre in this film are, you know, they're, they're, crazy, they're crazy overt. Yeah. It's not exactly subtext. I mean, there's even a scene where they're watching the film Shane and commenting on Shane. But the film I kept thinking of was Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. And in, in Unforgiven, that, that Eastwood persona, even though it's a character unique to that film, it's very much playing the Clint Eastwood persona we've seen for decades. And it's a bit of a final film for that archetype, this old bitter gun slinger who's kind of forced into action one last time and it's sort of, it's melancholic, it's angry and yeah, just really bitter and I think sort of, yeah, Logan is the unforgiven of superhero films. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it was actually uh, Deadpool was the, well Deadpool was an R-rated film and even though that's camp it's kind of darkly camp and that was actually the film that um, paved the way to this being allowed to have an R rating and for them to really go for oh, broke, maybe Kick Ass as well before beforehand. That was a bit earlier, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah, that was a long time ago. I think, um, well, you know, ten years ago now. We, had, think, we had this really weird run of sort of self reflexive yeah. revisionist superhero films before proper superhero films took off. Funnily enough, like Kick Ass and Watchmen came out before the Marvel franchise really took off. Yeah, um, but but yeah, I, I mean, I think superhero film has just become such an established genre now to an extent that I don't think anybody really quite imagined and and I, I thought it was well and truly had kind of done all it was going to do of, of interest because as much as I enjoyed things like the last Captain America film they just all got a bit same samey but um but this one reminded me of the excitement I got when I saw Christopher Nolan's Batman films or even you know the the, the, the first two Blade films which I remember really enjoying <laughs> yeah this kind oh, yeah. of <laughs> gave me some of the rush I got got out of that yeah it's yeah. not without a certain self-awareness, though. Um, a comic really of the X Men is yes, yeah. yeah, very curious and and strangely dismissive of its own or, you know, as uh, this phenomenon of of the Wolverine and X Men franchise. Some sort of scepticism as to its own origin story in this um, film is just quite peculiar. Uh, it's woven into the narrative. Ultimately, it, it's a bit of a is it a bit of a red herring? It, I don't know. It, it, it seemed to be. It's not an actual comic, I believe. Well, it was it, done for the film. It's yeah. the idea yeah. that the superhero, that the, the events in the films we've seen previously happened sometime in the past and they've now been mythologised in comic books yeah. and these comic books now exist in this universe. Yes, but which which is dictating the terms? So what's already been written? <laughs> is that the, the narrative that the film chicken will then follow? Yes, it's chicken a chicken or the egg. egg. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, do we want to talk a bit about the, um, the, the border issues here, the things that seem to jibe very contemporarily with... Trump's America because it's quite uncanny in this film. That there's, um, <laughs> the, the villain's name Donald. Well, there's yeah. <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff going on, and and yeah. um, and the the border crossing between the states and Mexico, and that the the mutants are of a particular uh, ethnicity, I think, is quite striking. Yes, uh, that the, these people who are being othered, and in this film, they're actually the last people to be being othered, and though weirdly, they're kind of the creation of the very. Uh, institutions that would other them know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I it gets the mythology behind that. these films gets very dense and complicated. Yeah, like, yeah, they're, they're yeah. mutants who are getting further experiments done on them to enhance them. Yeah, I think. Or something. There's no, weren't they? Some of them were created 
as mutants. Were they? Oh, they were in this yeah. film. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. were petri dish. Kitties. It's very, it's very much a kind of you know the spanning the the, the old superheroes dying out and um, let's save the little children sort of film as yeah. well. But yeah. what I, I think the moment I really started loving this film is when we realise that these little children, especially Daphne Keane, the young girl who has to be protected by Logan, is. Um, can somewhat hold her own. Yeah. And when she goes into full flight and starts kicking ass, that's when I think my blood really started pumping and I realised this film was on a new level. <laughs> and that actually happens with the sequence. There's a big kind of car, a motorbike race. And I look, I got flashbacks to, to Fury Road. There was sort of a moment there where just the use of the vehicles in motion and this this extraordinary little girl sort of spinning around, slicing people to pieces. Yeah, some of that seemed <laughs> very... me of the excitement I got when I saw that film. Well, yeah, some of that vehicular mayhem did seem real. I mean, we know that some of the other sorts of mayhem in this film cannot be real but that the vehicular stuff yeah it was it was visceral um almost quite palpable and and a bit uh a bit exciting even for this uh quite skeptical not exactly anti-superhero but generally a bit dubious type character at this end of the are we all on the same page as having a fascination with the superhero mythology but we all oh yeah i do i do i do i do i do i I don't usually like them unfortunately because i guess yeah Yeah. i'm exhausted as well but also i I think i have higher expectation because the morality behind super like the 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 construct of superhero storylines is usually fantastic and it just hasn't been executed very well in cinema and i think that might be the pitch to the more general audience um, in terms of children as well, trying mm. to trying to get in as big an audience as possible. That four-quadrant thing that yeah. the studio executives talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think they've suffered because of it. And this is very much in, in title, in rating, in content, not for, uh, you know, teenage boys. I don't think they'd be really interested in seeing Patrick Stewart as the dominant character or one of the dominant characters um, ageing and just being an old dottery man, really. Can we quickly mention that Stephen Merchant is in this in a dramatic role? He's amazing role? and, and he's I loved very him. good. Yeah, yeah. That was a real great. surprise to me. I yeah. had no idea to expect. Uh, was he in any of the predecessors? Nope. No, he wasn't. That's I think a, another actor oh. played him in another film. Um, I think that character has been in there. I looked it up. I don't know. I, I haven't to, seen yeah. the film. <laughs> there are serious superhero fans going insane listening to this know, conversation. I know, but at but least but, we, yeah. we've revealed yeah. we're, you know, not superhero nerds. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes, oh. we've let ourselves off. <laughs> I am so pleased I'm not the only one who got all giddy by Logan. <laughs> You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Alone in Berlin is the new film by the Swiss filmmaker and actor Vincent Perez. It's based on a 1947 fictionalised novel about a real-life working-class German married couple living in Berlin during the Second World War. They began committing subversive acts by writing anti-Nazi sentiments on postcards and leaving them around the city. Brendan Leeson and Emma Thompson star as Otto and Anne Quangle, the ordinary couple who, upon hearing about the death of their son during the war, became politicised against Hitler. Daniel Brühl plays the police inspector in charge of finding and arresting them, himself under considerable pressure from a brutal and impatient SS officer he ends up having to answer to. Vincent Perez is Swiss? I didn't know yeah, that. apparently. Good golly. <laughs> when, when did you first meet Vincent Perez? I think I was Queen Margot and then Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Two Damned. Two films with Queen. Melbourne's own. Yeah. Until about, Where a big quarries represent. Until 12 hours ago, I had him mixed up with Vincent Cassell. 
Oh, Why I was saying to people, oh yeah, it's the new film directed by that guy who was in La Haine. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, howdy, are they in for a shot? Yeah, I got, I got that really, really, really wrong. I have Did you think that that's why I was pushing this? Because it was a Vincent Cassell and thing I and Alex is weird about Vincent Cassell. Convinced I got the two Vincents mixed up and I thought this has to be the reason Alex is pushing this. What, why, were you, why, why were you pushing why were for us to do this, Alex? And what, yeah. what, did, what do well, you think now you've seen the film? Um, look, I think... I think a lot of things. I have lots of thoughts. Can I talk about them? Yes, please. please. I'm going to do that. I'm going to. I'm going to raise the discourse. That's my new bong packing. Raise the discourse <laughs> tonight. My new, my new catch for eats. That um, and hot diggity. <laughs> I don't want to talk about hot diggity. That's not discourse raising. <laughs> Look, this is absolutely the kind of film that you would watch on an aeroplane. This is not stellar filmmaking <laughs> by any stretch. I really need to start that from the outset. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of of interest, and I think that this is going to happen more over the next couple of years that this film was made and released before uh, Trump became the president of the United States. But this is a film watching it for me that had extraordinary contemporary resonance that's obviously accidental. Um, I mean, obviously there's like a zeitgeist kind of mood going on, but I just found this so switched on almost despite itself to a lot of stuff that's going on now and, and for a pretty formally uninteresting film. I mean, it's not a TV movie. It's Emma Thompson and, and Brendan Gleeson. I mean, these are really top, I, top shelf, capital I, A actors. Somehow, well, maybe because they're capital A actors, I found it hard to um, buy them as Germans for some reason. Yeah, Emma Thompson, I, she's always a bit capital A ac- actor for yeah, me. I yeah. always, I'm always, It's that Meryl Streep syndrome where I always am aware that it's Emma Thompson acting. But she's so English. Mm. I mean, Gleeson's, Gleeson's the so opposite English. for me. Gleeson, I just... Gleeson's I, usually pretty Irish. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't get that. Well, she's Thompson. English and he's Irish. She's on the verge for me. So, I don't know. Yeah. I look. I'm not one of these people who tends to get fussed about the ethnic background of actors. I unless it's obviously offensive. I believe that you know actors are actors and they're meant to play people different to them. So I tend not to worry. I tend not to like judging a film because I associate that actor with another role. But I have to say, with this film, I was really struggling with the fact that Brendan Gleeson is just such an Irish person and Emma Thompson is just so English and they're acting in a film directed by a Swiss person about Germany and I just didn't buy them and it's, I, I, it's they a look weird bored. Back, I, they look like they're reading their lines French on placards film? is it a French production it's a German French UK production it, it has a strange it's what they call a euro pudding <laughs> <laughs> In what language? But it's not. Was it? It's in English. It's, yeah. it's, in, it's in English. It's yeah. um, with German accents. Bad or good? <laughs> oh, you know they waver. You know, you, 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 it's a type of film where um, you have uh, if, if if you just remain British and throw in a little bit of a German accent here and there, you're going to get away with it. It sounds dire. <laughs> <laughs> the novel that this is based on, I, I think, I think that's what really brought me to this film is the source material. So this this novel, quite famously, it wasn't called Alone in Berlin. I can't remember what the original novel was called. I'm, I'm filling. I'll, filling. I'll look it up. Yeah. Um, it's you ha- Hans Verlader is a 1947 book, and this was really one of the first books that came out in Germany that was anti-Nazi. It's a hugely important historical book. Now, it's a fictional book. In the film, they're called Otto and Elise Hampel. Uh, in real life, they were... Uh, sorry, they're Otto and Anna in the film, and in real life, they were Otto and Elise Hampel. I think there's other differences. So the, ca- the couple in real life, I think it's her brother that died that propels them to basically do zines. They, they just write these these postcards. They just write nasty postcards about Hitler being Hitler being a murderous liar, and then they, they anonymously drop them in public places. Um, and they're called the, the Gestapo go berserk about this, and they they deposit. I think the the final total was two hundred and eighty five of these 
postcards across Berlin um, and there's Operation Hobgoblin to catch the people responsible for this. And it's just these little working class couple who work in a factory who are just pissed that their relative died for such a stupid, stupid yeah. war. And I think, I mean, and this is what really gets me, I, th- I think, watching this now in the face of, you know, th- this ongoing rhetoric about um, uh, fake news. You know, this is, this is classic Lugenpresser stuff. I mean, at one point in this film, they even call themselves the free press mm-hmm. um, in this pre-digital environment where just writing, kind of just graffitiing on a postcard. I mean, I think one of the first ones he does, he gets a, a postcard of Hitler and changes it from the Fuhrer to the liar. Mm. Um, and he just deposits it in a in a public building, in a government building. Um, it's it's really. I mean, this is a story. I think that, um, that there are parallels that need to be made. And I think this film, obviously, with the timing, it's making them un- you know accidentally. I don't think that they knew this stuff when they went out. Obviously, they didn't know this stuff when they made the film. Well, a, a big part of the last election was the power of memes, and and election and public opinion is now being fought on memes, which I can't take seriously. Whenever someone drops a meme into a conversation. I assume their opinion is no longer valid and I stop following them. But there's actually, especially with the the so-called alt-right, you know, which is just the fancy name for neo-Nazis, that they actually were highly organised in creating memes. And watching this film, I thought, that's what this is. This is early meme creation. There's a wonderful academic at Swinburne University called Esther Milne who wrote this brilliant book. Um, Oh, and I've gone blank on the name. It's, um, It's on basically talking about the history of things like postcards and letters, this sort of analogue, handwritten, you know, communication tools and how they've converted to things like to Twitter and Facebook and social media. And she draws these direct parallels in those histories. Um, and I thought a lot about her book when I was watching this film and that that's precisely what it is. These are like, you know, later versions of these would be the, the photocopied zines or the memes, you know, like it's exactly that. And, and the, the, the push in this, it's like, I need to do something. And Gleason's character, Otto, becomes obsessed with seeing people react to the postcards that he leaves around and this is what puts them in a place and I don't think this is a spoiler this is a very very famous story it's been remade numerous times it's a really really famous novel um they get caught because he just needs that a lot and and it's almost like that that addicted to the like you know he needs well, yeah. the, the dude needs the retweets that's you know? it that's the interesting thing I was kind of you know calculating I thought well really what they're doing is the equivalent of I think about 18 likes <laughs> so is it worth it and I think that is another question that the film was asking a lot about was it worth it um, I think that they believe that it was worth it um, it kind of had that s- sense of passive resistance except it was they were quite nasty, their little their little cards. Mm. So, you know, it showed that sort They were of very adolescent and they talk yeah. about it in the investigation a lot. It's like, well, they're, they're clearly, like, clearly uneducated yeah. um, but at the same time quite intelligent. So there's that tension. Like it's obviously somebody who works in a factory. You, know, you can tell by the handwriting. The most fascinating um, thing about this film for me, for, me, for me was the investigation by Daniel Brühl's character and I, I, I felt that almost should have been the focus on the film, how this guy was using... You know, some fairly smart police work to get to the bottom of who they were and he wanted to prosecute this according to the letter of the law and then his whole authority and sense of personal morality was horribly compromised when the SS intervened. I mean, the only scene in this film that really kind of I found quite arresting was the scene where he's talking to this SS guy who just starts punching him in the face in front of everybody and that was a really confronting shocking scene in, in a film that otherwise didn't really move me much even though like Alex I was intellectually fascinated by it um, and then you know the Daniel Brühl character makes some horrible moral compromises later in the film because of his own fear for his personal safety. I think there's some really interesting films coming out at the moment 
um, I don't think, you know, I'm not saying it's a new wave or anything like that, but just the, maybe the films that I've sort of found really interesting recently coming out of uh, about World War Two are these ones that are really fascinated on bureaucracy. Yes. There's something about so um uh, the, the banality of evil things being explored yeah, yeah, yeah. more what and more now. Yeah, yeah, the one that uh, Jif released, um, Fritz Bauer. Oh yeah, the people, people versus, versus Fritz, Fritz Bauer, Bauer, which was after the war and Labyrinth of Lies. They were, of course, about the the Nazi um, finding the the bad Nazi guys yep. in Argentina afterwards. But this this focus on bureaucracy, I fi- I'm finding really fascinating now because it does tie into that. I was just following orders. Like what? It's really unpacking the the density. Of those ethics? Well, that bureaucracy was such an effective dehumanising tool. When you're looking at a spreadsheet or whatever they used back then and you can just cross out numbers of people to execute, that is so distant from the real people, along with the use of language to describe them as rats or insects, stuff that's creeping into contemporary political discourse mm. again, which is utterly terrifying. Mm. The, the Lugan Presser stuff to me is extraordinary. Like it's, And, you know, the, the constant reference in this film to, to them being radical activists through this very, very grassroots media creation, I just find really fascinating. And I think that that's at the heart of the story, Um, the the original Hans Falada story from 1947 that he based on this real case. I don't necessarily think that this film has done anything particularly majestic with that material. I think that this is... um, a pretty pedestrian film, I think, is the best to say, even with the, the calibre of the acting talent. I'm, I think the phrase Oscar bait gets thrown around a fair bit, but this does feel a little bit like misfired Oscar bait. Yeah, it's worse than Oscar bait. It's failed Oscar it's bait. Fa- yeah. <laughs> Can we start a band called Failed Oscar <laughs> Bait? That's brilliant. <laughs> so it's a little bit... It's not wet, but it's just a bit pedestrian and a bit... Yeah, grab a glass of wine and watch it on a plane. But like I said, the bigger issues, I think, going on here, the fact that we're watching it now, it's very difficult to make a disconnect between the actual story that this is based on um, and what we see on screen in front of us. That's just going to keep happening. I mean, and, and I, I suspect listeners are already getting tired of hearing every second film being described as a parable on the Trump administration, especially since these films are made pre-Trump. But it, you, can't, you can't escape it right now. Well, I've been going back and recently and watching a lot of um, sort of films from the 40s, so Orson Welles films in particular, Orson Welles as The Stranger. I, it's, mm. it's on YouTube. Everybody watch it. It's, it's amazing. If, you, if you've got questions about the ethics, about if you should punch a Nazi, watch Orson Welles' <laughs> The Stranger, 1947, I think. I mean, film is always telling us stuff, and that's what I'm finding really fascinating about these films that are either historical or going back and watching older films. It's like we well, so we much, know this stuff. So like, much post-World War II film and entertainment and popular entertainment is about beware of the rise of fascism and authoritarianism. I mean, I'm, look, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and I'm revisiting a lot of the stories at the moment, and they're all really basic parables about how dictators take control, how they often convince the public that they're working in their best interest when they're doing quite the opposite. I mean, the the Daleks, for heaven's sakes, were a metaphor for Nazis. And it's because when this stuff was made, it was really fresh in their minds and at some point it's been forgotten. And that's why we do need to keep having stories about these authoritarian regimes from the past to try to not repeat it again, although we seem to be not doing a a very good job It's amazing to say that it's been forgotten when you think that there has not been a break in uh, Nazi-based films or storytelling. Um, In fact, it's quite... Well, it's criminal in itself that it's been forgotten, but I think also, you know, Trump is just a storytelling telling cliche. I mean, you know, stories from the dawn of time have been like, uh, have been Donald Trump stories. So we are going to see him and this uh, this new uh, presidency in um, many guises, watching rewatching films. 
Oh dear. What a note to end on. We've actually had lots of bleak films tonight. The Family is on limited release through label distribution. Logan is on wide release through 20th Century Fox. Alone in Berlin is on general release through Icon Film Distribution. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.